Hey everybody, Michael Cohen here, welcoming you back to another episode of Cohen's Corner. Thank you very much for tuning in to today's show. As always, you can find episodes of this podcast available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and just about anywhere else you listen to shows. If you happen to be listening on an Apple device, we encourage you to leave a star rating, preferably five stars if you like the show, and maybe a comment if you have some thoughts on prior episodes or maybe what you might like to hear down the road. I check all the feedback myself, and it means a lot to hear from you guys. I can't thank everybody enough who's contributed some feedback thus far, and I hope to hear from some more of you down the road. Today's guest is former Bills and Jets defensive coordinator Dennis Thurman, who worked alongside Rex Ryan while Rex was head coach of both of those franchises. Dennis developed a reputation for being one of the better defensive minds around the league, and in particular was lauded for his work with members of the secondary. Dennis himself played safety in college at the University of Southern California, and then transitioned to cornerback when he was drafted by the Dallas Cowboys in the 11th round in 1978, and so that explains why he was so good at working with corners and safeties at various stops throughout his career, which I will get to in a second. As I mentioned, Dennis played safety at the University of Southern California and then switched to corner when the Cowboys drafted him in 78. He participated in Super Bowl 13 as a rookie while playing for the Cowboys and then proceeded to advance to the NFC title game three more times during a prolific era for the Cowboys franchise, though they did not reach the Super Bowl again during his tenure. Dennis was regarded as a terrific interceptor of the football. He finished his career in Dallas with 36 interceptions across eight seasons, including five years with at least five interceptions and one year with nine interceptions, including one game where he had three picks all in one afternoon. Dennis then transitioned into coaching after nine years in the league, first breaking into the NFL as the defensive backs coach for the Phoenix Cardinals in 1988, obviously then became the Arizona Cardinals a few years later. He then took a stop in the World League of American Football with the Ohio Glory, where he was a defensive coordinator for the first time. That was a precursor to NFL Europe and a launching point for a lot of guys, both in the coaching ranks, the playing ranks, and even the referee and broadcasting ranks. Guys launched their careers in Europe, then came back to the NFL and had better opportunities. When Dennis returned to the United States in 1993, he went back to his alma mater, and he coached defensive backs at USC through the rest of the decade from 1993 to 2000. He had the opportunity to coach a number of terrific defensive backs from Jason Seahorn to Brian Kelly to Chris Richard to Troy Polamalu. And after that time at USC, he quickly went back to the ranks of the NFL, becoming a defensive assistant for the Baltimore Ravens in 2002. This is where he links up with Rex Ryan for the first time. He eventually would also link up with Mike Pettin, Mike Smith, guys like that that ended up forming the nucleus of the coaching staff that went to New York when Rex Ryan took over there with the New York Jets in 2008. Dennis was promoted from defensive assistant with the Ravens to defensive backs coach in 2004, working with guys like Chris McAllister, Samari Roll, even Deion Sanders, though Deion was past his prime at that point, and of course Ed Reed, who won Defensive Player of the Year in 2004 while Dennis was his position coach. As I mentioned, the majority of that staff transitioned north to the New York Jets in 2008, where Dennis again began as the defensive backs coach from 2008 to 2012 before being promoted to coordinator in 2013. These were the Jets teams that went to back-to-back AFC title games upon Rex's arrival in New York and had some of the best defenses in the league. 
Dennis was coaching guys like Darrell Rivas, who was regarded by many as the best corner in the league at that point, and by some as the best corner in the last 20 or so years, as well as Antonio Cromartie, another tremendous corner who went to multiple Pro Bowls and made an All-Pro team, and safety Jim Leonard, who is now the defensive coordinator at the University of Wisconsin, for anybody who's listening that followed me from my years covering the Packers. When Rex Ryan and his staff then went to Buffalo in 2015, Dennis followed, and he was the defensive coordinator again in 2015 and 16. And after that, he stepped away for a little bit before making a brief return as defensive coordinator of the Memphis Express in the AAF before that league unfortunately went defunct. Dennis is a guy that I got to know a few years ago while I was covering the Packers. When that franchise decided to hire Mike Pettin as defensive coordinator, I wanted to try and learn more about the system that he ran in New York when Pettin had the majority of his success as Rex Ryan's defensive coordinator, and also just to learn a little bit about him as a person. And as I've mentioned many times on this podcast, there was a terrific book written about the 2011 Jets season, I believe it was. It was called Collision Low Crossers, and it was a behind-the-scenes book by a journalist who had full access to the Jets the entire year. He was in the locker room, he was in the scouting department, he was in coaching meetings, just tremendous access to that organization. And that's where I became familiar with Dennis's name and knew that not only was he a well-respected coach, but also based on the quotes in the book, had a, had a pretty nice personality and a guy who you know seemed easy to talk to based on what I read. And so I gave Dennis a call, and for those of you who might remember a story I wrote when I was covering the Packers, um, I focused on why Mike Pettin likes press man coverage why he likes it, and also what types of players are needed to play that position. And Dennis was extremely helpful for that story. He was quoted throughout the story, gave some tremendous explanations about types of press man coverage, body types, how you teach it, how guys learn it, really, really insightful stuff. And he also helped me out with a story again later that summer that talked about, you know, young players working within Mike Pettin's defense because the Jets, um, you know, developed a little bit of a reputation for not caring about a guy's age. They would play young players, undrafted players, whoever they thought could do a good job and fit in a particular package, they would put that player on the field. And so Dennis was helpful explaining why they believed in those those philosophies and how they might project onto the franchise in Green Bay as well. So Dennis is a guy that has been really helpful to me, very beneficial explaining the X's and O's, and also just a guy that has a lot of great stories from the league. So I think you guys will really enjoy this. And without further ado, let's get into a conversation with former Bills and Jets defensive coordinator, Dennis Thurman. Well, Dennis, thank you so much for taking the time to join me. I really appreciate it. Um, you know, this is a time of year for, for football fans when everybody is generally really excited about training camp and, and the season ramping up. And I still think the majority of football fans are, but it's a it's a strange time for sure. And, you know, I got to ask you, as somebody who went through a lot of training camps, both as a player and a coach, how would you be feeling if you were getting ready to go into this right now? Um, uneasy. I, I, I would have an uneasy feeling about it um, for two reasons. One, uh, you know, being trying to stay safe, you know, dealing with, you know, COVID-19 and the uncertainty uh, with it. And uh, and then the second reason would be, is it going to, you know, how long is it, are we going to be? How long is this going to last? So we're going to make it through the season. Um, you know, those those questions in my mind, have not been answered. Uh, I just think there's a there's a lot of unanswered questions going into it, 
based on, I mean, if you look at what's happening with baseball, baseball is a game where you, when you're on defense, you're already socially distanced. You know, uh, every position is more than six feet from, uh, from one another. Um, the issue with baseball is when you're at the plate and when you're on base. And, uh, you know, they seem to be having issues. And football is a sport where you're in contact with someone on most every play. Um, and I just, and, and that's also without uh, the bubble mentality. Uh, it's, you know, you're, you're not isolated. You're moving around uh, and you're dealing with more players, more staff, uh, just, just a lot of different things that I just, I, I just think they're going to have a difficult time uh, trying to uh, trying to get this. I think they can get it going. I just think they're going to have a difficult time sustaining it. You know, I was I was listening to a podcast and reading a couple articles about what the NBA has done and how in their bubble situation, there were obviously some players that decided to opt out either for health reasons for themselves or family members, but also some coaches who were deemed to be high risk because of any underlying health issues or age. Now, there have been a lot of NFL players so far, I think about 25 or more that have opted out, but I haven't really heard that same dialogue regarding coaches. And I know you still have friends in the league and friends that are older coaches and younger coaches. And, you know, I'm wondering from your perspective, do you think there's probably some guys that would entertain opting out if they could, but there's so much pressure to keep one of the jobs that they have that maybe it's just something that they're, they're pushing ahead with anyway? Oh, without a doubt. I mean, uh, you know, players are, you know, they have some underlying health issue. Uh, from what I understand, you know, they're getting paid, you know, upwards of three hundred thousand uh, dollars, and also getting an accrued year. Uh, the ones that have chosen to opt out uh, are getting paid one hundred fifty thousand, I believe, and uh, I'm not sure if they're getting an accrued year or not, but uh, maybe they are. So I'm not, I'm not exactly sure on that, on that ruling. But uh, I think that if if guys are able to opt out without getting penalized or feeling the pressure or feeling like they might lose their jobs. I think more players and coaches probably would take that option. Uh, but, you know, there's uncertainty with that also. Uh, long-term, would it help you or would it hurt you? You know, how would they look at you? How would they view you? Uh, you know, if you're, if you're a coach and you say, you know what, I'm not comfortable with this, uh, you know, and you have a one-year contract. So your contract is, is, is due or up uh, January, February of 2021. You know, would they offer you a rollover, you know, or would they terminate you? I mean, I just think there's some, some unanswered questions that are out there that uh, a, lot of, a lot of players and coaches would, uh, you know, have to be careful when they're looking at this, you know, especially, you know, an older, an older coach and also some older players. And it looks like, I guess, a lot of the players from New England are, you know, 30-plus. Uh, so, you know, how will they be looked upon, you know, in the future? I don't think anyone knows the answer to that question. Yeah, it's, it's going to be really fascinating to see how it plays out. And, and I kind of agree with you. I'm under the impression that I think they'll get through whatever kind of a training camp they're going to have, and I think they'll get through a couple of weeks. But if they made it beyond the midway point of the season without either having to you know, change course or postpone or something, I would be 
I would be a little bit surprised. And, you know, it's a shame because obviously this is a time of year, like I said, when, you know, people are looking forward to football. And, and had they gone with some kind of a bubble idea or something, maybe we'd be in a different scenario. The NBA and, and Major League Soccer have seemed to have a lot of success so far in terms of limiting the number of positive tests in their bubbles. And, and baseball and the NFL have not. And they're the sports that are that are outside. But, you know, assuming the season does happen, um, you know, I'm curious. You were a guy when you were leading defenses and all also when you were part of Stabs in Baltimore and early in New York before you became a coordinator where you were part of some of the best defenses in the league. And so as a guy who gets a chance to watch a lot of games now and a lot of different teams now, who are some of the defenses that you were excited about potentially seeing this year? Um, you know, I don't really, you know, watch any one particular defense. I just like watching, you know, how different people are, or different coaches are doing different things. Uh, and, you know, a lot of times, you know, you can pick up some things off of television. Right now I'm not watching a whole lot of tape. Uh, when you're able to sit and watch and study tape is where you really learn and figure out uh, what teams are doing and, and, and the like. But, um, you know, I was interested. You know, one of the things I'm interested in, to answer your question, though, is I'm interested to see what Denver's going to do, uh, you know, with Vic Fangio and uh, see if they have some, you know, and Von Miller and that group, see if they have some bounce back. I don't think they played as well last year as a lot of people anticipated that they might play because of what Vic had done in Chicago uh, with that group, uh, which obviously enabled him to get the job. But uh, So I'm, I'll, I'll be interested to see how they, how they respond after having a year that wasn't as, as, you know, as good as what Vic had done in Chicago and Von Miller did his stats that dropped a little bit. And, uh, you know, I think that, you know, if he doesn't opt out, because, you know, some people are saying he may opt out, I don't know. But if he doesn't, to see what type of year he will have. And they also, I believe, lost, lost Cliff Harris. And, uh, you know, so they they have some, some things that they have to, to uh, repair. But I'm anxious to see what they'll do uh, on defense. And uh, I'm interested to see what the Chargers are going to do. You know, I mean, you, you give Bolster the kind of money you just gave him. Uh, you know, they, they have talent on their defense. Uh, they're going to have to hold the fort, I believe, early. Uh, while, you know, Tyrod, uh, if, he, if he wants a starting job, I believe he's going into camp as a starter. And, uh, you know, the Herbert kid from Oregon, who, by the way, had a chance to watch last year when they played USC. Um, I think he's got a chance to be a pretty good one. Uh, you know, how quickly he develops and and uh, understands the difference and the speed of the game, which is very, very different from college football, uh, especially at the quarterback position, uh, how quickly he's able to uh, to pick up and adjust to things, uh, being that there's not going to be a preseason. Uh, I'm, I'm interested to see, you know, what the Chargers defense is going to do and can they keep them – in games and in in the race, especially with the division that I think got better. Uh, you know, the Chiefs are the Chiefs. Their offense is phenomenal. They have great talent. Uh, I believe the, the Raiders are going to be better on offense. I believe the uh, Broncos are going to be better on offense. So, you know, what 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 will the Chargers defense do? How are they going to respond and keep them in games? Uh, early in the season, especially with there being no preseason, and that's going to be a, a huge challenge for 
for a lot of coaches, a lot of teams, because, you know, you go back to that college, that college mentality. There are no preseason games. Uh, you know, when, the, when it, you sign up for college football, it's, okay, who are we playing first? Uh, well, when is that first game? Oh, it's August 31st. Oh, it's September 6th. You got to be ready to come out of the gate bucking. So, uh, you know, you win that game, you want to know. You lose that game, you're 0-1. And it's not like that in the NFL. You know, you come out, you play a quarter, you come out, you play a half, you know, whatever, depending on who you are uh, in the pecking order. And you get a chance to, you know, uh, just, you know, kind of ease your way back into it. But with there being no preseason, you're not going to have that opportunity. You're going to have to come out. Uh, ready to go, which means, you know, how much more physical are you going to be in training camp? you got to get some hitting done. Uh, you can't just not hit in training camp. And then the first time you tackle somebody is the very first game. Uh, I don't I'm, I'm, I'm little, I'd be a little nervous about that. So it'll be, it'll be a different type of training camp and mentality. Uh, how much hitting do you do? Uh, is it enough? Is it not enough? Uh, so that'll, you know, head coaches and, and, and organizations have a lot to think about, um, before they line up and play their first game. Yeah, I'm kind of glad you brought up the Chargers. That was the team that I was going to mention as well. You know, Casey Hayward is a guy that I was close with from my time in Green Bay, and he was on my podcast a couple of months ago, and he's very open and, and adamant about the fact that he thinks Derwin James is already the best safety in the league, and so I'm excited to see Derwin come back this year healthy. After missing some time last year, they added a guy like Chris Harris, who you know has been a tremendous player at times in his career. So that secondary, in addition to what they've got up front with Bosa and Ingram and those guys, um, you know, it's it's pretty impressive. And, you know, for, for a guy in your position that, you know, not only was a coordinator, but also specialized with DBs for, you know, a large portion of your career. Um, when, when you look around the league, I, I know I've, I've seen a clip of you talking about Jalen Ramsey and the respect you have for the way that that he can move and the things that he can do athletically. But, you know, aside from Jalen, who are some of the DBs in the league that, that you enjoy watching as a guy who A, played that position yourself and then B, coached it at a very high level? Um, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of corners. I mean, there's, there's, you know, they're all different. Uh, the thing about the game now is if you really looking at the game, a lot, a lot of teams are playing a lot more man, uh, than they used to. Uh, and you know, it's easier, it's an easier scheme to teach. I mean, you're, Hey, you got, you got your cat. I got my cat and you got to cover your man and I got to cover my man. Uh, and you know, people have gotten away from some of the, uh, the multiple uh, combination coverages, you know, where you're playing quarter, quarter, half, where you're playing straight quarters, or you're playing cover two uh, on one side and quarters on the other, you know, uh, and doing some things in that regard that, that used to be a part of the game uh, because of the running quarterback. Uh, the running quarterback has brought a new dimension to how you play defense, uh, whereas in the past, back in the day, you didn't have to worry about quarterbacks necessarily running the football and the read option or zone read, uh, whichever you prefer. Uh, but now, you you know, you're dealing with Lamar Jackson and, and you know, Deshaun Watson and Kyler Murray and, and some of the guys that are, are as athletic as they are, you know, even Patrick Mahomes. And you got to be aware of him uh, running the football. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's added another dimension to the game that uh, – 
you know, you didn't have to account for that guy, but now you do. And so, you know, what's the best way to, to play that? Well, you got to free up and play a lot more man and, and assign somebody to the quarterback. Uh, and even when you assign somebody to the quarterback, if you're dealing with Lamar Jackson, I mean, that's a one-on-one tackle in the open field. And there are very few safeties that I've seen in the National Football League uh, that can tackle that guy one-on-one. And, uh, you know, so you're, you're at their mercy. So the game has changed. Uh, so, therefore, defenses have to change. But, uh, again, to answer your question, I do enjoy watching uh, Jalen Ramsey. I think that he's, he's long, he's athletic, he's got tremendous ball skills, he can press, he can play off. Uh, you know, I just think he's a complete corner and a great competitor. Uh, I really enjoy watching him. Uh, you know, the guy that, that really has taken off uh, since he left Buffalo and we had him. Uh, in Buffalo for two years is obviously Stephon Gilmore. And, uh, you know, Steph has is, is matured and, and taken the responsibility and the challenge of, of uh, you know, shutting, taking the guy man-to-man one-on-one and shutting him down to the to the point of, you know, being last year's defensive player of the year. I mean, and congrats to him. You know, it was very enjoyable watching him uh, do what he did. And, you know, the key will be for him will be can he do it again? Uh, you know, some things are hard to duplicate because one of the things that a lot of a lot of players don't recognize um, is that as much as you study offenses and study receivers, they study you uh, and try to figure out ways that they can beat you. Uh, so if you don't if you don't you know continue to work at your craft and develop your game even even more. You know, you'll look back and say, well, this worked last year. Well, yeah, I mean, they'll, they'll be looking to see the routes that you cover well uh, and the routes that maybe may give you a little bit of trouble. So you always have to continue to develop and evolve as an athlete and as a player. Uh, and if you, you get content with, uh, hey, this worked a year ago, well, it may not work this, this, this next year, you know, whereas you may not have seen double moves. Uh, you know, a year ago, and they start saying, you know what, hey, he he can cover an out, a one a one break route. Can he cover cover a double, a two move, a double move? You know, an out and up. You know, a stutter go, a Dino route. I mean, you always have to continue to evolve. And if you can cover one break routes, you may not see a whole lot of one break routes. You may see some double moves. So continue to work on your game. You know, with guys changing teams so often now because of free agency, you don't often see um, too many matchups of corner versus receiver within a division where they go up against each other year after year after year. But for uh, the four years that I was in Green Bay, I got to see sort of the Devontae Adams-Darius Slay matchup and sort of how they both prepared for each other every year because they knew, you know, one was going to be shadowing the other no matter what. And it was exactly what you just said. You had to find a way to do something different than what you put on tape for this guy before and you know so to to have a matchup like that and then in your career coaching a guy like Gilmore and then obviously coaching a guy like Revis I had a a DB's coach tell me once that he used to pick out specific years of some of the elite corners to show his guys and I think it was like 2014 Richard Sherman was one that he pulled out Uh, I think it was 2009 Revis was one that he pulled out and then there was a Champ Bailey uh, year in there as well in terms of recent guys and so when it comes to that type of prep 
separation. How did a guy like Darrell Rivas stay at the top year after year after year? Again, understanding understanding his game uh, and what he's what he brings to the table, but then you know looking at yourself and seeing okay, what can I work on? How can I improve? Uh, and understanding again, one of the things that a lot of young DBs don't understand, even some veterans don't understand is that, you know, over time, the teams are studying you in the off season. If a guy that had a great year and, and you're, you, you know, you would think you're going to play him twice. You're going to study him. Okay. As an offense, you're going to see, how do we beat him? How do we, how do we take advantage of, of what he does uh, or does not do well? And you got to look at yourself and say, I got to improve. If I have a weakness, I have to improve on that weakness. I cannot come back in the next year and think that everything is going to just going to pick up from where it left off. Uh, you know, and you fight, you fight as an athlete to continue to, to get better. You cannot get and become complacent um, because there's, I mean, the talent is, is so even across the board in a lot of ways in that league that, okay, you'll come into it and say, hey, I covered him last year. And so you don't feel like you have to study. You don't feel like you have to prepare. And uh, you feel like what you did a year ago will be good enough. And then you'll get out there, and then all of a sudden, boom, it's not working what you did a year ago. And now you got to sit there and go, wow, well, this worked last year. Well, this is not last year. This is a brand-new year. Uh, you know, people are gunning for you. Uh, you, you are an all-pro. Uh, people are going to get up for you. How do I beat him? Uh, they're going to scheme you. Uh, offensive coordinators are going to scheme you. Quarterbacks, wide receivers are going to look and see how I can beat you. Uh, and those those are things that young defensive backs and even some veterans don't understand. You know, they think that uh, what you did a year ago is going to be good enough uh, to continue uh, you playing at the same level uh, your entire career, and that's just not true. So, uh, you know, I, I'll, I'll equate it to this, um, you know, because I'm a big basketball fan. And, uh, you know, I was watching Magic Johnson when he first came into the league and, and some of those guys, when they were talking, they, they always talk about, hey, I got to come up with something different uh, and work on my game in the offseason because, uh, you know, people are going to study you and they're going to prepare for you. So what, how did I improve my game? You know, it's the individual game within the team framework. Uh, so you have to look at it that way and say, I got to be better than I was a year ago if I'm going to be amongst the greats. Was that a mindset, you know, that, that desire to, you know, tweak something each year or improve something each year? Did you have that during your own playing career when you came into the league with Dallas in 78? Yeah, well, I learned, I learned a valuable lesson um, through playing. Um, and it was, you know, 1981, we, uh, you know, Everson and I combined to have, you know, 20 interceptions between the two of us during the regular season. And uh, he had 11, I had nine. And, and, you know, played pretty good in the playoffs. I was a year, obviously, we lost to the 49ers on, you know, Dwight Clark making a great catch. But, um, you know, it was my own personal experience that taught me that. Uh, so I come into the, into the opener um, against the Pittsburgh Steelers on Monday night in Dallas. And, uh, you know, I was good. I was good at, you know, covering one-break moves. And uh, we get in the game, and it's in the third quarter, and John Starworth runs a, you know, what you used to call in the street, stop and go, 
you know, they give us a lot of different names. She ran a starter goal on me and got behind me and beat me, uh, you know, for a long, a big play. Um, and uh, I did subsequently, two plays later, I gave up a touchdown pass uh, on a corner route. And, uh, you know, in my mind, I had thought, okay, I played, you know, pretty good a year ago. And uh, I went into that season, 1982, feeling like, okay, I just pick up from where I left off. And uh, that didn't happen. And then we went out on strike, you know, came back the next week. We played the Cardinals, and I played decent. Uh, then we went out on strike. And uh, when we went out on strike, I recognized that I, I needed to work on my game. And it, it took me, uh, after we came back, took me three or four weeks before I began to feel like I was playing the way I was capable of playing. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously I played, I felt like I played a lot better later in the year than I did in the beginning, but uh, it was, it was, it was eye opening. It was, you know, it was, a, it was a challenge for me because I just thought, you know, going into my fifth year that I would just pick up where I left off and that's not the case. That wasn't the case. And I got lazy that off season. Uh, but it was the last off season that I was lazy. Um, and, I, and it helped me understand as a coach that you can't be that way. Uh, you know, so things that I learned, uh, from playing aided me a lot, um, you know, when I became a coach. You know, when I was doing my research, um, you know, obviously I knew a lot about your coaching career because you and I have known each other for a couple of years now, but I wasn't as familiar with some of the events and things from your playing career. And when I was reading some old articles from back in the 80s, I kept seeing something called Thurman's Thieves and what that meant for the <laughs> Dallas secondary. Can you give an idea of what Thurman's Thieves was? And was that kind of the, the Legion of Boom? Was that sort of the, the kind of idea that you guys had there? Well, we didn't we didn't really get a moniker until 1985. I mean, but um, what we had done from 1981 through 1985, uh, and we didn't really know. Uh, it was brought to my attention uh, by I can't remember if it was Gary Myers or uh, one of the writers from Dallas, but it was a Monday night game, the opening game of the season, and we played. Uh, Washington Redskins, who were our rival, and by the way, I'm happy to see that they finally changed their name. Uh, we, you know, we won't get into that, but I'm I'm happy that they're going to change the name. I'm with you. Uh, and uh, and we were playing them, and Joe Theismann, uh was the quarterback, and uh, and so you know we we played them. It, I guess it was Joe's birthday uh, on that Monday night, and uh, we ended up getting five interceptions as a secondary. And uh, and so after the game, Danny White, uh, I guess, was being interviewed, and somebody asked him a question about the secondary and how we played. And uh, you know, to get five interceptions in a game is, you know, pretty impressive. And uh, he said he he gave us the name, and uh, it stuck. But what what we had done from 1981 through 1985. It's one of the things I'm most proud of is we didn't know it at the time, but we inter we intercepted 150 balls wow. uh, between 1981 and, and uh, 1985, which you know obviously is thir you know, averaging 30 a year, uh, and they weren't throwing the ball as much as they throw the ball now. Sure, uh, and maybe they didn't throw it as well back then 
either. You know, I'm not sure. You know, but I believe the Seattle Seahawks uh, also had 150 interceptions during that that same period of time. But you know, when you can, as a group, you know, when you can average 30 interceptions a season, uh, and there were some years that we obviously had more than others. Uh, but on the average, we got 100. Uh, we got 30 a year. And now you look at the game now, and there's some teams that don't intercept 30 balls in two years or three years. Uh, so, you know, it's something that, that we're pretty proud of as a group that we were able to, uh, you know. And, and, again, the thing that, that a lot of us weren't high draft picks. Uh, you know, I was a 11th round draft pick, which they don't even have anymore. Uh, Michael Downs was a free agent. Everson Walls was a free agent. Ryan Fellows uh, was a sixth or seventh round pick. Dexter Klinskale was a free agent. Bill Bates was a free agent. Uh, you know, we had uh, a kid named Victor Scott who was back there with us. Uh, he was he was the highest draft pick we had. Uh, he was the second round pick, but he didn't come until 83 or 84. Um, so it was a bunch of guys who a lot of people didn't think could play. And, uh, you know, we ended up being a, a very cohesive unit. We studied together. We practiced hard. We understood what we were supposed to do. We communicated well, and, and we felt like, you know, we were one of the strengths of our of our defense. I mean, we had a great front four, um, but they were all first-rounders. They were supposed to play well, and Randy White, Hall of Famer, uh, John Dutton, uh, you know, too tall, and then we drafted a young guy, uh, you know, Jim Jeff Coat, and before that we had Harvey Martin, you know, who was defensive, in, you know, MVP in the Super Bowl, um, you know, when the Cowboys won it. So, um, you know, it was one of those where we didn't have a lot of high-round draft picks. We had a bunch of guys who were cast off, so nobody really thought we would make it in the NFL, let alone play well. So, uh, you know, we, we felt like we left our mark, uh, you know, with the Cowboys organization, and it's something that we're all pretty proud of. Yeah, the reason I brought it up is because I found this article and it was previewing, it was from, the date is October 4th, 1985, and it's previewing a game between the Cowboys and the Giants, and I don't know Dexter Klinkscale, I've never met him, never spoken to him, but he had one of the greatest (laughs) quotes I think I've ever seen in this article, and it says, quote, the myth is that Phil Simms is a great quarterback, which he isn't. He has no special gifts or intangibles like Joe Montana, Dan Marino, or even Joe Theismann. The Giants are a fake. They're just imitating potential conference winners. They have a defense to put them where they want to go. They have special teams that put them where they want to go. But they have an offense that keeps them from where they want to go. New York may have been struck by Hurricane Gloria, but she didn't have the impact and intensity and fury of the Dallas Cowboys. My advice to the people of New York is to secure all your valuables when the sun sets Sunday and the storm sits, storm hits, excuse me, because Thurman's thieves will steal the evening. And I thought, I mean, I, look, I don't know this guy. I don't know if he's like that all the time, but that was one of the greatest quotes I've ever read. Well, he, um, Dexter was a free agent from uh, South Carolina State. And, uh, again, like I said, we were a bunch of, bunch of guys back there that, you know, that were pretty confident for guys that people didn't think would play. I mean, if you're a free agent or 11th round draft pick or, you know, something like that, a lot of people have questions about you. But uh, we went in, I believe it was a game, we went into New York and played them on a Sunday night, right. if I'm not mistaken. And, uh, you know, we all felt like Landry was upset with us. Uh, because of that quote, uh, 
we felt like we were disrespecting them. Uh, but as luck or fate would have it, Phil Sims did fumble the center snap, and uh, we won the game because of it. Uh, it was late in the fourth quarter, and he just he fumbled the center snap, and we recovered the football, and I believe we were losing at the time. or It was, it was a very tight game, uh, and we ended up scoring and ended up beating him in that game because I, I believe he also threw an interception on a uh, – uh, you know, trying to bring them back uh, in a two-minute drill in that game. So, uh, you know, it ended up being a prophetic quote. Uh, and uh, but we learned a lesson from it. You know, you can't you can't talk bad about your opponent because we believed it, it gave them incentive. They were a good football team, uh, and we 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 had our battles with them. And I respect Phil a lot. You know, like don't know him well, but I've had a chance to talk to him. Uh, some since then, and uh, you know he did lead them to you know Super Bowl championships. So uh, he he did some good things. He did some good things. So you can't just call it, say he was a, his career was bad and he was a scrub. But that particular night, uh, he did fumble a center snap late in the fourth quarter that helped us win the football game. You know, you guys reached the Super Bowl in your rookie year in 78 and participated in, in what was arguably maybe the best Super Bowl ever, or at least between two of the best teams um, in that era. And then, you know, for the rest of your time in Dallas, you go to three NFC title games, but can't quite get over the hump. And I know in talking to you over the last couple of years, you always, you know, preach to me how hard it is to reach a Super Bowl. And people sometimes don't understand all the things that have to align for the two teams that get there. And I'm wondering if reaching a Super Bowl in your rookie year and then not being able to get back there for the remainder of your playing career, did that influence or or sort of heighten your appreciation for what it means to get to that game when you became a coach? Oh, without question. Um because you know you get to your rookie year and you you know you get this false sense that oh we're gonna get we're gonna get back here we're gonna you know we got a chance and we did have a chance to get to uh, to get there uh, we had three other opportunities yep. um, and uh, you know 1980 81 82 you know seasons we you know we had to the the, the thing that happened was, was which was scary is we we had to play all three of them on the road. Uh, and uh, you know, went, we went to Philadelphia. Excuse me, Philadelphia. Go to San Francisco, and then we go to Washington. Um, and you know, they were all toss-up games. I mean, they were, they had great teams. Uh, we happened to be a team that everybody had, was gunning for. Uh, you know, the 49ers obviously built. You know, from what I understand, built their team uh, to a point where they were going to beat the Dallas Cowboys. I know Dick Vermeil and the and the Eagles being in the same division, same thing. Uh, and the, you know the Washington Football Team, as they call themselves now, um, you know back then uh, was our number one rival. And uh, same thing with them. Everything was about beating Dallas. And uh, you know we get into those games and and we don't perform the way we we were capable of performing. I, it, for whatever reason, uh, they played well. They outplayed us, obviously. They won the games. Uh, but we had our opportunities, um, and uh, we fell short, and we just couldn't get it done. So, uh, you know, when you look back on your career, as I have, and uh, you sit there and you go, we were good enough, but on those days we didn't get it done, and uh, and they did. But it would have been interesting to see 
if we had played one or two of those games on our home field, which obviously we didn't play well enough during the regular season to get home field advantage, um, you know, what that would have been like to play those teams on our home field. But it didn't happen. And, uh, you know, you look back on it and there's nothing you can do to change it. So you, you, you have to live with it, you know. You have to live with it because there's not a oh, – you can dream something different. When you wake up, the result is going to be the same. It didn't change. You know, in my time in the league, and I've spoken about this on prior episodes of the podcast, I had a tremendous amount of respect for guys who proved that they had – incredible durability over long periods of time and whether regardless of what position you play you're going to have to play through something you know probably every season sometimes multiple times a year and some guys miss more games than others and like I said when I was doing my research for your career I didn't realize that you played in every single game of your entire career all nine seasons 137 games you could have played in and you played in all 137 and I'm curious if um, you know, I mean, how, how did you do it really? Like, how do you, how do you be that reliable every week? And again, I've said this before on the podcast and you've said it to me, but the best ability is availability. And obviously you had that at an a hundred percent record. Well, um, I gotta take you back to high school on that one. Um, I started playing football when I was 10, 11 and I I know I didn't I didn't miss any games then either. Uh high school I didn't miss a game. Um and high school I only missed one play. Uh where I you know, I got hit, got the wind knocked out of me and I I, I missed one play where they had to come get me. Um college football, same thing. I missed one play where I was returning the punt and the guy hit me before I fielded the punt, grabbed a uh, fifteen yard penalty, uh where the you know, the trainers had to come get me. Um, and then I missed one play in the NFL where John Riggins' knee hit me. Uh, I caught a knee uh, right on the temple uh, in uh, in a game, and uh, the trainers had to come get me. So my career, I missed three plays because of an injury. That's, uh, that's ridiculous. <laughs> one, yeah, and... Uh, and I've only had one surgery, but I, that was when I was 39. Uh, I had a scope on my right knee, but that was more from playing basketball than than football. Uh, I just, uh, I mean, I felt like I was in, in great shape. I felt like my physical conditioning enabled me to be to be durable. I mean, yeah, bumps and bruises, you know, AC joint sprain in my shoulder, uh, dislocated finger, you know, those things happen. Um, I had a chip pelvic bone, um, that I played through, uh, 1984. And, um, and so, you know, but th- those are, those were, you know, things that, that were, that allowed me to play. Uh, but I, I, I kept myself in great shape. You know, when I, when I think back on, on how it happened, yeah, I was in great shape, but there was also some luck to it too. But I always just felt like that because I was able to play at my peak, uh, because I didn't get tired. You know, some so a lot of times you get hurt because you get tired. Right. Uh, I I didn't get tired. Uh, people would look at me and say, "Why do you? Why aren't you tired?" Um, and I I just believe it was my off season training. 
that I ran all the time. Uh, and like I said, physically, I felt like I've kept myself in great shape. Uh, you know, they were doing those, those body, you know, those, you know, dunk tests for body percent body fat. Sure. And every year that I did it, my, during my, my career in Dallas, I was negative 2%. And they, they, to this day, to this day, they, they start, that's impossible, physically impossible that you, you have to have at least 2% body fat. And I have more, I have body fat now, obviously, because I'm a little heavier than I was back then. <laughs> but, but, uh, I did, I mean, I would test out at negative 2% every single time. Uh, when it came to percent body fat and cause I ran all the time, I, I had these stairs, you know, they're called highway to heaven that I ran in Santa Monica on fourth street. And before I go to training camp, I would run those steps 10 times. And if you ever, if you ever get a chance to get to Santa Monica, you go to fourth street in San Vicente and you get on, you get on those stairs and, uh, most people walk them, but I would run, and I would run them 10 times without rest. And if I could do that, I knew I was in great shape. Or after I did that, I knew I was ready for the season. And when I couldn't do that anymore, I knew it was time to retire. And after, when I, this last season in Dallas, going to training camp, I, I got to nine, and I didn't get 10. And I, and I looked at it, and I said, it's about time for you to, think about giving it up because I did not get 10. Um, every year that I played football uh, from the time I got in high school through college in my NFL career, if I could get up and down those stairs 10 times without taking a rest, I knew I was ready for the season. And when I couldn't do it, I felt like, okay, my body's telling me something. More, more importantly, my mind is telling me something as well. Um, and so it's time to think about giving it up. And I did. You know, you spent all but one year of your career in Dallas, like you mentioned, and that final one, um, you know, you go to St. Louis, and, and, you know, that's a team coached by Gene Stallings, the, the St. Louis, and then eventually Arizona Cardinals. And, um, you know, when you got your first coaching job, it was working for Gene Stallings. And so I'm curious if going into that last year of your career, when you started to maybe have an inkling that your body wasn't quite what it used to be, did you already have an idea um, that you wanted to go into coaching, and, and was that kind of anything you talked about with Gene going into that year? No, no. I um, he invite he had invited me to go to training camp uh, early with the rookies. Uh, you know, he and Coach Landry. You know, and Coach Landry asked me uh, after my seventh year uh, if I had ever thought about coaching, and so I went into uh, I went to training camp with Coach Stallings. Uh, before year eight, I went in with the rookies and uh, helped him with, with the rookies. Uh, but then he left. So he was my, my ninth training camp in Dallas. Uh, Coach Stallings, was, that was the year he, got, he took the uh, Cardinals job. They were still in St. Louis. And so I did not go to camp early to help Dick Nolan, who was now our new secondary coach. Um, but I, I thought I was going to go into sports broadcasting, you know, I don't know whether it was on radio or television. Uh, and so I was preparing for that once, you know, post-career. Uh, and that's what I wanted to do. And uh, after I retired, I was at home. 
and uh, spending time with my daughter and my wife at the time. And a, a deputy sheriff knocked on my door one morning and uh, I answered the door and uh, he he goes, he said, you Dennis Thurman? I go, yeah. He goes, and I, I had this look on my face. Oh, no, no, you didn't do anything. He said, Coach Starlings is looking to try and get in touch with you. <laughs> uh, and he handed me he handed me a piece of paper with his number on it. And uh, and he asked me to call him. So I called him and, you know, he, he asked me, he said, hey, I, I got a secondary position open. Would you be interested in it? He said, I want you to fly. I want to fly you in back into St. Louis and uh, come meet the guys on the coaching staff and, uh, you know, let's sit down and talk about it. And so we, I flew into St. Louis and talked to him, met, you know, Jim Johnson and Joe Pascal, uh, two of the guys that I would be working with, uh, both very good coaches. Um, obviously, Jim Johnson ended up being a great defensive coordinator himself. Uh, got a lot of respect for him. And, you know, Joe's a really good uh, you know, tactician and, you know, could speak well in front of the group. Uh, had a little personality, you know, so I learned a lot from those guys uh, and ended up working with them. Uh, and, uh, you know, Coach offered me the job and I accepted it and uh, and went to, you know, was with the team when they moved from St. Louis to Arizona. And we were playing pretty good football. Uh, we were 7-4. Uh, midway through the season, we had we had just beaten the Pittsburgh we beat the Pittsburgh Steelers, New York Giants, and San Francisco 49ers. By the way, that was the last game the 49ers lost that year um, in Arizona, and we were seven and four. But Neil Lomax got hurt, and we were playing pretty good football. We were tied for first in the uh, AFC East, and uh, we ended up losing five straight games. And then the next year. Uh, Coach Stallings got relieved of his duties, but you know he asked me did I want to go with him to Alabama because he felt like he was he thought he was going to get the Alabama job, which he did. But uh, you know my personal life was not what it should be, and uh, so I opted not to go. And uh, I had to get my life together and get myself together and become a better person. Uh, and I felt like in a lot of ways it was one of the best things to happen to me. Uh, and I was ready to deal with the, uh, the life of a coach uh, and mature and grow up, uh, you know, just taking a year and a half, two, year, two, two years off. Uh, and I felt like I grew up a lot as a man. And uh, I was happy that I did, I did what I did. Uh, in, that, in, the, in that time, though, Coach Stallings won a national championship at Alabama, so I missed out <laughs> on that. But, uh, you know, I felt like I feel like my life uh, ended up being the way it was supposed to. You know, I wouldn't change a thing about it, um, about the way it, you know my coaching career is going. Because the one thing that I did miss is that I miss miss telling you is that I could have gone to Detroit after my first year in uh, in Arizona because uh, Wayne Fonts had just become the head coach at Detroit. Oh, okay. Well, he was my he, he was my secondary coach at USC my freshman and sophomore years. And uh, he flew me into Detroit because I was operating on a one-year contract with the Cardinals. Um, and um, contract for contract, 
the Detroit job was a was a you know higher paying job and was offered me, you know, two years and the Cardinals again were only offering me a one year contract. Um so contractually uh I had I would have been in a better situation uh had I gone to Detroit and left the Cardinals after one year. But it just didn't seem fair, uh in my mind that uh Coach Dawlings gave me my opportunity to uh to get into coaching in the National Football League and that I would leave him for more money, you know, uh you know, when when I we had just gotten started in Arizona. Uh but you know, I learned a lot from that experience because getting you know, he got he got let go, the coaching staff got let go and uh, you know, I didn't have a rollover contract. Um so I learned a lot from that experience and uh looking back on it, you know, I'm not sure I would have made the same decision. Um, because at the time Coach Stall uh Coach Stallings was, you know, we didn't know his seat was hot. Sure. Uh you know what I'm saying? And Coach Fonts was just starting out and he even talked to me at that time about possibly become you know, becoming a coordinator in the National Football League. You know, and he was saying he was saying all the right things to me, um, but you know, when I when I flew back to Phoenix, I I just I, I couldn't leave Coach Stallings. And uh, but like I said, knowing what I know now, I'm not sure that I would have made the same decision. Uh, knowing what I know now that I made back then. Yeah, and then you mentioned you know taking a little bit of time to to get yourself together and and organized, and then your next opportunity you know for a lot of people might actually seem like a a tiny little asterisk on the resume, but for me it's supremely interesting because I have a very strange connection to the World League of American Football, which is where you coached in mm-hmm. 1992. Uh, you were with mm-hmm. the Ohio Glory, and this is a precursor to NFL Europe. And my very small connection, I'll, I'll try and keep this brief, is that. I actually wrote a, a really long story, like a 6,000-word story for Sports Illustrated a couple of years ago about a player who you actually coached against uh, in the WLAF. He played for the Barcelona Dragons and eventually, a number of years later, um, was convicted of murder. And I wrote a true crime story about all the craziness that went through his story. It's a guy named Eric Naposky. He played for the Patriots and the Colts, and then he bounced over to the World League of American Football. But I started to learn a little bit about that league, and during the reporting process, I talked to his coach, Jack Bicknell. I talked to Oliver Luck, who was the commissioner of the league, and I learned just how crazy some of the crowds were in Europe, especially in Barcelona. And I'm just curious what that experience was like for you to be in that league. And, you know, I found an old clipping from one of your games where you guys played in front of 49,600 fans in Barcelona, which I imagine has to be one of the more unique environments you've ever coached a game in. Oh, yeah. I mean, we were there. We were there for a week. Uh, And it was also the year of the Olympics in Barcelona. That's right. Uh, And so they were building the Olympic Village. Uh, You know, so there was a lot going on over there. And, uh, you know, they were gearing up for the Olympic Games. And so, you know, we had a chance to go over there and play. And it was crazy. I mean, the atmosphere was crazy. The game was crazy. We lost the football game, but uh, they were a pretty good football team. Uh, we played pretty good on defense. Uh, but like I said, we ended up losing the game. Uh, but it was a unique experience. I mean, they 
they wanted to take us, you know, running with the bulls and all that kind of stuff. I wasn't going running with nobody. <laughs> okay, I'm, I, I mean, it was it was it was an experience, um, you know, to go out on, on and see some of the things on those beaches, if you know what I mean. Sure. Um, so it was it was just it was a great week uh, to be there. It was great atmosphere. It was a great game. The crowd was phenomenal. Like I said, you know, it was a it was a pretty good game. They won the game, but it was a unique experience. And the you know the fact that the Olympics were going to be there because I believe if I'm not mistaken, we went there in middle of March or toward the end of March. Uh, and so you know, like I said, they the Olympic games were within a few months. Uh, and so it was a pretty exciting time to be in Barcelona, Spain at that time. You know, that, that league in general was not just for player development. There were a lot of coaches that got their start over there before bouncing back to the NFL or college football. Uh, referees, even broadcasters and things had opportunities over there. And so, you know, after your one season in the World League, uh, you go back to your alma mater and your DB's coach at USC from 1993 to 2000. And so did you kind of hope that, that that brief experience would be kind of a launching pad? And then, and then how emotional or how meaningful was it for a guy from the Los Angeles, Santa Monica area to be able to, to coach, you know, at the place that, you know, made your own career as a player? Well, yeah, I thought, you know, that was, that was the, the plan to get, when I said, when I accepted the job with the Ohio Glory and Larry Little was our head coach, you know, Hall of Famer, great guard for the Miami Dolphins. Uh, you know, he's part of that, uh, you know, obviously only undefeated team in the history of National Football League, 17-0 yep. team. Uh he was our head coach, and uh, he gave me the opportunity to come be his defensive coordinator. So uh, I'll always be thankful, you know, to to, to Coach Little for that. Um, but yeah, that was that was my launching, uh, the relaunching of my career, uh, and uh, I felt like I was, again, like I was better prepared um, to be a coach. Uh, my first experience at being a coordinator, uh, calling, calling games and. And preparing not only defensive backs, but you know, having to having to have the whole defense prepared. Um, uh, and then when I got a chance to go back to USC and play with Coach Robinson, because uh, you know he he had said that if I didn't make it in pro football, he would hire me as a coach. Okay. Uh, and so uh, you know he had the opportunity to to offer me a job, and he he made he made true on his promise. Uh, but I had played a lot longer than he thought. Even he thought I would play in the NFL. Um, because, you know, when I came out of college, I was 5'11", 175 pounds. I wasn't very big. Uh, a lot of people didn't think I was fast enough to play. Uh, and so, you know, not being a 4'2 guy and, and 175 pounds, uh, you know, coming out of college, you know, I didn't fit the prototype, especially when I, I wasn't. I learned to play corner in the NFL. I was a safety Right. Uh, high school and college. And, uh, but I used to, I used to tell people all the time, you know, I might run four or five, you know, four, five, five, uh, in the 40, but my brain, I felt like I was, I played at four one. So if you combine my, my, my actual running speed with my brain, I felt like I played at four three. Okay. If you, if you roll those two things together. Um, and so I felt like that was, my advantage that I was able to think the game and see things quicker uh, than a lot of players who probably ran faster than I did. Um, and so 
but getting back to the coaching thing, um, you know, he gave me an opportunity and uh, to go back home. And it was a very easy, seamless transition uh, because the recruiting process became easy for me because to sell USC for me was easy because I had lived four years of that experience. Right. So I was talking to these kids and their, their parents and to them, you know, from a firsthand account, I could talk to them about uh, things that I've seen and done through my own eyes. It wasn't something that I was, I, you know, that I thought I knew. It was something that I actually lived for four years. Um, and, uh, you know, I was able to go there and recruit fairly well and, uh, you know, learn how to coach and teach on a, at a different level because coaching at the pro level is very different than coaching at the college level. Uh, where the expectation is that, you know, all you're doing when you're coaching pros is that's their job. You know, they're going to eat, sleep, and, and talk, and, and and everything is about football. Whereas in college, uh, the thing that became very apparent to me, and one of the things that John Robinson taught me was, uh, hey, these guys got to go to school. They're worried about their next meal. They got a girlfriend. Uh, they got parents. You know, they have homework, they have papers that are due. In other words, their existence is not just football. And you, your coach, he told me, he said, you're coaching like these guys are in the NFL. He says, there may be times where if you want their right foot in a certain place, you need to take their right foot and put it where you want it. You may have to take his left hand and put it right where you want him to place his hand. Um, and you can't assume that what you talked to them about yesterday in a meeting room, that they're going to remember it. And it was, it was eye-opening to me when those things were happening to me. Yeah, I said, we talked about this already. And the, the player would look at you and go, Coach, I don't remember. And you would be like, wow. It, it became a reality to me that, you know, you can't teach the same way in college as you could in the NFL where they're going to retain things that you talked to them about or you showed them the day before. These guys would forget it when they walked off the practice field because, you know, they might have a class that, sure. day that you talked to them about something that took place on the football field. And now they're, you know, they had to go sit in a, in a three hour class or a two hour lab or whatever those things are. And, and now they have to go you know, read books and study and you're sitting there and all you're doing is watching tape and thinking, you know, situations and football, and they come back the next day and <laughs> they don't remember, you know, what they ate for breakfast. So, you know, it was a different, it was a different way of teaching, and it, and it forced me to teach in a more simplistic way, uh, not to use big words, but to keep it simple. Uh, and, you know, maybe a catchphrase here or there um, with your teaching progressions that they will remember, you know, uh, certain things. And it, it just, it, it, it helped me tremendously to go from coaching pro football, which I had been a part of, you know, for nine years as a player and two, my first two as a coach, to go coach college football for eight years and learn how to teach. Uh, in a more simplistic form. And uh, and then when I got to the NFL, you know, it was very interesting how a lot of players would come up to me and say, you make this sound so easy. 
you know, it's more difficult to do than what I, the way I would explain it. But they, they would say, you make it sound very, very easy and uh, not overly complicated because I, I wasn't using big words. I'd use, you know, and, and again, the other thing that Coach Robinson taught me was, <coughs> excuse me, say it in as few words as you can. And if you can get your point across by saying it or using as few words as you can, you'll be a better teacher. And so there were things that I had to work on, and, and they really helped me. They really did. You know, you had the opportunity to coach a, a number of great guys there. And, you know, I, I want to ask you a couple of questions about the the Ravens and the Jets and the Bills. But before I get to, to that, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you briefly about one of the most talented players you had the opportunity to coach, and that would be Troy Polamalu at USC, a college football Hall of Famer, a pro football Hall of Famer. And, you know, you were right there at the very beginning of his career, I believe, up until his sophomore year, which means you were there for the recruitment process and as he got into college football. And then by the time, you know, he got into the league, you were in the league, too. And, um, you know, you got to see him play at the tremendous level he did in Pittsburgh. I'm curious how special he was back then, even in college or, or maybe even in high school, when you might have, you know, seen him play either in person or on tape from where he was up in Oregon. Yeah, he was uh, interesting because uh, Steve Greatwood was uh, a coach that had coached at the University of Oregon. And uh, Kennedy Pola, who's, uh, who's Troy's uncle, uh, who now coaches the running backs with the Minnesota Vikings, was coaching. I can't remember where Kennedy was coaching. He was coaching somewhere, uh, but it wasn't at USC. And uh, KP that's what we call him. If you know him, we call him KP. He shortened his name to Pola because uh, he felt like Pola Malo. A lot of people would have a difficult time, um, you know, pronouncing his name at that time. So he changed it to Kennedy Pola. So a lot of us knew him by Kennedy Pola. Um, or KP uh, was, was he called, he called me one day and he said, if you want my nephew, uh, Troy, he said, Steve, he said, another coach is recruiting him. And that, uh, you know, I think he's getting ready to go to Colorado. He said, but I think he's very interested in coming to USC. And so, uh, Steve Greatwood, uh, went to Hackett and, and asked Hackett, he said, I think you need to send, uh, Dennis up to Oregon and talk to Troy. And uh, so I, I went to Portland and drove. I can't remember the little town that I drove about an hour and 15, hour and 20 minutes uh, to another small town and uh, sat and talked to Troy and his aunt and his uncle because that's who he was staying with. But I had seen him on tape, and uh, he was a high school running back. And uh, I, I liked his feet. You know, I liked what, the way he competed because he ran the football like he played, ended up playing defense. I mean, he was he, he was very competitive. Uh, he had good hips, and uh, he had good feet, and he was very competitive. And uh, you know, the question came up: Do you think he can convert uh, to being a defensive back? And we had done that um, with Dalen McCutcheon, uh, another kid named Kenny Haslip, uh, who they were high school running backs that were converted to being DBs, you know, but Troy wasn't going to be a corner. But I felt like the way Troy attacked things as a, as you know, when he had the ball under his arm, that he was not shy when it came to contact. So I felt like, you know, we could, we could convert him to a safety. 
and that, uh, you know, he's a naturally great football player. That was the thing that I looked and saw. Was he's naturally a great football player. And so he ended up committing to us and uh, and coming to play for uh, for us, you know, his freshman and sophomore years when I was coaching him. Uh, and, uh, <clears throat> you know, we had to find it. Being he, he had a great training camp with this uh, this junior college All-American running back who had come out of San Francisco City, and I can't re- I can't remember that kid's name to save my life right now. But there was a play in training camp where Troy met him in the hole, and you know it was just I mean they just met in the hole like two, two like you know they were just there, boom. And instead of Troy tackling him, Troy took the ball from him and ran for a touchdown. I mean they just wow. but they hit face up, and it was one of the great. We all looked at each other and said. What just happened? I mean, he literally took the ball out of this man's hands and ran for a touchdown. And we we were all standing there just looking at each other like, what did he just do? And, uh, you know, we we had to – he was so impressive that we had to find ways to get him on the field uh, without overloading him uh, mentally. And so, you know, we found packages to, to play him, and uh, he became a starter his sophomore year. And uh, – you know, from there, he, he took off. And uh, it was also interesting that when I when I got to Baltimore in 2002, uh, you know, we had drafted Ed Reed yep. uh, after my first draft, uh, during my first draft there in Baltimore. And Troy was, uh, was coming out the following year, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yeah, 2003, out, I believe. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, I was listening to, uh, you know, our coaches, Ozzy, scouts and everybody. Uh, and they were talking about Troy. When, it, you know, we in the defensive uh, meeting rooms, uh, you know, scout uh, meetings that we were having leading up to that draft, trying to put our final board together. And uh, so I listened, you know, because I was, you know, I just gotten there the year before and I wasn't, you know, I didn't. I was staying in my lane. Uh, but, you know, they were talking, well, we don't know if he can cover and we don't know if he can do this and do that. And uh, and I listened and I listened and then I had finally I had had enough. And I, you know, I raised my hand like I was in elementary school. And I said, with all due respect to all of you guys in here, um, I said, you're not giving this guy the credit that he deserves. I see he's a great football player. Well, we, we've never seen him cover. And we, I see he's got great ball skills. I said he's got good speed. And I said, you know, the way that Pete used him, uh, you know, at, at USC, I said he can play close to the line of scrimmage. He can play off the line of scrimmage. He can cover. He, again, he's got great hands. He's got great ball skills. And, uh, you know, they had some other deep, other safeties that they were talking about that they liked better than him. And, uh, and I, I just said, I have to say this. I said, I, I just, I said, I recruited the kid and I just, I coached him his first two years at USC. And I said, uh, I think, I think you're making a mistake. Well, come draft day, uh, when Pittsburgh traded up, I believe to the 16th pick in the first round and took him, there was a couple of scouts that came down to my office 
in Baltimore and said, oh, by the way, we want to let you know we had Troy rated ahead of him on our final board. <laughs> and I was like, I was like <laughs> okay, all right. And I, you know, I left it, and I left it alone. But I, I just couldn't, I couldn't just sit there and listen to what they were saying. Not that it was bad. I mean, they, they had them rated pretty high. Sure. But I just felt like they didn't, they didn't know what he was, what he, what Troy was really all about. And he proved it over time that, you know, he was one of the best safeties uh, to ever play the game. You don't get voted into the Hall of Fame if you're not. Uh, and over time, he, he proved himself. But I, I, I just had to, I felt like I needed to, you know, stand on the table for him uh, in our, you know, in our, in our sessions because I, I didn't think that people and with the Ravens organization, we're seeing them in the right light. Uh, and that's not, that's not to brag on myself. It's just to let people know that how I felt about him as a football player. Uh, and, uh, you know, so that's, that's my Troy Polamalu story. Uh, <laughs> you know, that, that and, uh, go ahead. I'm sorry, Dennis. No, I'm saying I'm excited, you know, to see him, you know, get his yellow jacket. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, that, that group in Baltimore that you, you referenced, from from a coaching staff standpoint, it, it became a, a pretty special bunch because not only was that nucleus there in Baltimore, but then a big chunk of that nucleus goes to New York when Rex gets the job to coach the Jets. And then, you know, again, some of that nucleus goes to Buffalo when he goes up there. And so, you know, when you got there, Brian Billick is the head coach, but he's an offensive guy. And so the defensive coordinator was Mike Nolan. Rex Ryan was the D-line coach. Mike Smith was the linebacker coach Donnie Henderson was the safeties coach you become the DB's coach uh, Mike Petton ends up on that staff as well um, can, can you kind of talk about sort of the the cohesiveness of that bunch and and why it worked and then why it was successful again in New York when you guys moved up there a few years later yeah well you missed two guys that ended up coach when I first got there Mike Smith was the linebacker coach yep okay who you know ended up being the head coach for the Falcons and then when he left, Mike Singletary took his place. That's right. Okay. So there on that on that defensive side of the ball, um, every coach that was in that room either 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 became a head coach or coordinator head coach or became a coordinator in the National Football League. Every single guy that was in there at the time. Um and so when you think back on why we were playing great defense, we had great players, obviously. We also had some pretty good coaches uh, that were on the staff. Um, but just the biggest thing was guys coached their guys. You know, one of the things that, uh, that, <laughs> that they taught me, which but they didn't have a problem, they weren't going to have a problem with me anyway, was, you know, farm your own land. In other words, stay in your own land. Coach your guys. Okay, don't worry. Let the coordinator worry about the defense. But you, as a position coach, you coach your guys. Don't worry about the, what the linebackers are doing. Don't worry about the D line. You're a secondary coach. You coach the secondary to the best of your ability, and we'll let the, the coordinator put it all together. Um, but the phrase that they use was "farm your own land." Uh, so we had a bunch of guys that pretty much farmed their own land, and uh, you know we let the coordinators figure out the rest of it. And, uh, you know, because everybody was so focused on coaching their guys uh, and not wanting to be 
the the, the coach who had the weakest group. Uh, you know, when you're dealing with uh, Ray Lewis as your leader, you know, uh, playing guys up there, Peter Boulware, you know, Kelly Gray, uh, you know, and, you know, Bart Scott. I mean, just guys that could play the game up front. Then we go get Trevor Price. You know, we had guys that we had pro bowlers at every level. Uh, and obviously, you know, a couple of Hall of Famers uh, and, and Ray and Ed. Uh, who were, you know, guys going Pro Bowl and Bart Scott and Peter Bowler and, and guys like that, Adelis Thomas. Uh, you know, we, we had some very talented players. And uh, you didn't want to be the guy on the coaching staff who, who were your group was the, the weakest group. And so, you know, it was, it was competitive uh, every week in terms of making sure you had your guys ready. Uh, but we were all on the same page uh, every Sunday or Monday night. And, uh, and that was the challenge of, of coaching, uh, and being a part of those, those great Raven defenses, uh, for six years. Yeah. I mean, you look at the guys, you mentioned a a bunch of them, obviously Ray Lewis, Terrell Suggs. I mean, there was a point in time, granted it was later in his career, but you had Deion Sanders on that team, Chris McAllister, Ed Reed. I mean, it was, it was loaded. And then you look at the guys you got to coach in New York, whether it was Revis, who was, you know, some people regard as the best corner of this current generation. And Cromartie was a guy who was an all pro and went to pro bowl teams. We mentioned that you coached Troy Polamalu in college and things, uh, Stefan Gilmore in, in Buffalo. Um, you know, I, I don't want to, um, I don't want to discredit any of the talent that these guys have themselves because so much of it is what they do, but you know, a lot of it too is what the position coach can bring out of them or sharpen and things like that so I, I don't know what what was your approach with these guys that were um you know some of the top secondary players in the league where they don't necessarily need you to create their game like some of the rookies need to be brought along but how would you approach a guy who you knew had you know all pro or maybe hall of fame potential and, and try and help them in a way that they wouldn't get offended at or anything like that um i think the first thing that that i tried not to do was talk to them too early uh, and try to impress them with what I knew. Um, I would watch and observe and I wasn't, and I'm still not, I'm not a cookie cutter coach. And by that, I mean, you know how you have these housing developments and they are, they build every house to look the same. Yeah. Okay. You know, cookie, cookie cutter mentality. Um, I wasn't, I didn't want to be that, that type of coach, and I'm not that type of coach. I wanted to watch and observe and see how I could help them improve. In other words, I took kind of an approach as a, you know, because I played baseball and I played basketball. You know, some guys shoot the basketball and, you know, it, it looks a bit unorthodox. But if it goes in, who cares? Okay. So who am I to change? If the ball is going in the basket and he's accomplishing what he's accomplishing, what needs to be accomplished, why would I change his shot? Okay, I'm not going to change his shot. Okay, how can if if it's, if it's just a little something where it might help it to improve, then yeah, I'll say something. Uh, but other than that, it's like, what what am I doing? And I'll give you an example. I get to Baltimore and Chris McAllister you know, hadn't gone to the Pro Bowl. And, uh, you know, I get there and I watch them and I'm working with Donnie Henderson and I 
I'm just watching Chris, and I just the only thing I said to Chris McAllister was this, and he he can tell you this. Told him low man wins, and he looked at me. Said what? I said low man wins, because he had all the physical talent in the world. He could run. He he could cover. He was big. He was physical. He was fast. He was smart. I just told him low man wins. That's it. That's all I told him. Then he comes back to me and says, low man wins. He started having success. The lower he played, the better he played. And that's all I ever said to Chris was low man wins. It's almost like okay. a mental trigger, you know, like he hears that phrase and it it, 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 uh, it sets up exactly what he wants to do. Yeah. And he started taking the other team's best receiver, holding them one, two, three catches a game, and get on the plane, get on the bus. He's hitting on the shoulder. He, he, low man wins. And, and that's it. That became our deal. Low man wins. Okay. Um, you know, had a chance to coach, coach Crowbarty early in his career. He's going through, you know, his workout. You know, Rex and I went to his workout. One of the greatest, if not the greatest, DB workout I ever saw. Really? Just athletic, just athletically. I mean, he was, and he was coming off of a an uh, ACL tear because uh, he didn't play yet that year. Um, but his workout was off the charts. And you know, he goes to San Diego and he goes to the Pro Bowl, and then you know they let him go because he he's no longer playing at that level. Uh, so they let him get out of there. And then it was it's just about with Crow. Crow, your arms, his arms, his reach was as long as Trevor Price, and Trevor Price was six nine. Wow. Crow was six three and a half, six four, but his reach was the same as Trevor Price. Crow, if you want to get your hands on people, use your length. Okay, use your length because you can read. He was, and he's very strong in his wrists, forearms, shoulders, so he could he could reroute guys just by using his length. Okay. Don't you don't worry about trying to play like a small guy. Play to your size. Yeah, and that's okay. what that's what you were telling me when some guys press with their hands and some guys press with their feet, right? Yeah, yeah. So he started using his length, and things started coming back into focus for him and his ability to to have receivers. He started noticing how wide receivers were releasing on him just to try to get away from his length. So he by by him doing just reaching out. Guys had to go a yard, yard and a half wider on their release just because of his length. Okay. Well, you know, he made a couple of appearances, uh, you know, back in the Pro Bowl. Um, first two weeks I got to New York and we get in the OTAs. I didn't even say a word to Reeves. He came up to me and said, are you going to coach me? <laughs> I said, I am. And he, and he goes, what? I said, I said, I am. He said, well, you haven't talked to me. I said, I'm trying to see how I can help you improve. Didn't you go to the Pro Bowl last year? And he goes, yeah. I go, well, I'm just, I said, when I say something to you, it's because I believe it'll help you become a better player. Okay. So the first two weeks, I didn't talk to him. And he thought I didn't like him. That wasn't it. I didn't want to just say something to him. Okay. And I and what I'm saying to him, he looks at me and goes, whatever. Okay. What I said to him was, you you need to consistently play to your strength. But more importantly, you need to come to camp in shape. I said, you you got to get in shape. And he looked at me. I said, 
you know, the football said, he said, well, I usually play my way into shape. I usually come into camp and, and get in camp in shape, you know, get myself in right. shape in camp, excuse me. And I was like, not that great players don't do that. I said, the truly great ones don't do that. And then the second thing I said to him is you need to adopt this mentality of if, if I'm covering you, you can't beat me. And I, and I told him a story about Lester Hayes. I said, Lester Hayes, when, he, when I was playing, you know, he was in Oakland, I was playing. I said, Lester Hayes used to meet the receiver on his side of the line of scrimmage. And then the, the official would have to tell him to get back. And it was, you know, get on your own side. I said, but he let the receiver know that wherever you are, that's where I'm going to be. Okay. And it was kind of intimidating. And I saw Reeves start to do some some of those things. And, you know, Lester, hey, we, we put Revis in the front of the huddle. He, he, he you know, but even though his position in our normal huddle, right. well, he was supposed to be on the back left corner. But because we had him shadowing the different, we were doing, we changed our defense up so that he became the linchpin and the kingpin and the defense that allowed us to do a lot of things that we, that we were doing in uh, 09 and 10. Uh, so he, he got to the front of the huddle. And uh, he he found his he knew where the receiver was going to be. Cause we told him, "Hey, here's where he lines up. Here's who you got." And uh, he would meet that receiver, start meeting him in in practice, practicing the way he was going to play. Uh, and uh, it, it became it became intimidating to a lot of a lot of wide receivers when he would do that. There was just a few tweaks, you know, within his game that that we that we that we worked on nothing great nothing big you know but more than anything it and it and one of the things that really helped Revis and is that you know he and Crow Marty started we'd have afternoon walkthroughs that we started letting he and Crow Marty miss where they would go in and start watching you know the receivers they were going to cover right and Crow Marty was was really good at uh film study um and so, you know, they began to help each other in that way uh, to study the game, to understand, you know, how to compete in the film room as well. Um, so, you know, just again, it, it's it, there's games within the game that are taking place that a lot of people don't really know or understand. And uh, and you can win or lose games based on, on preparation uh, a lot of times. It's much more than just your physical talent. There's a lot that goes into it. You know, I'll, I'll get you out of here on, on this last question. You know, those, those years in New York, I imagine, had some, some pretty strong emotions on, on, on two ends of the spectrum, you know, both from a personal standpoint, because you get a chance to be a coordinator there uh, again, you know, for the first time in the NFL, but the second time in your career. And you also have the opportunity to go to back-to-back AFC title games, but, you know, you guys come up short in both of them. You're part of two of the defenses that were among the best in the league for a couple years there in nine and ten it's new york city the attention is magnified so the highs are higher and the lows are lower how did it kind of feel to go through all of that and and once you guys finished and you moved on to buffalo um you know what what was the feeling like in terms of you know when you looked back on that stretch from from 08 to 14 as a whole um as a whole I, i felt like i felt like we started out well, uh, obviously getting the back-to-back championship games, uh, you know, 
couldn't quite get over the hump. Uh, personal feeling is that had we kept our team together uh, and brought that team back after we lost to Pittsburgh, I felt like we had one more run in us. Uh, but, you know, I wasn't the 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 owner, president, sure. GM or any of that. But, you know, we had we had a very we didn't have we had one great superstar and that was Darrell. We had a lot of great players. Okay, a lot of great pieces that fit well together. And I would have liked to have seen but it wasn't my call, but I would have liked to have seen that team come back and bring back Jason Taylor and bring back LaDainian Thomason and bring back Brad Smith and bring back Dwight Lowry and, and Drew Coleman and, and some of those guys that we had uh, that, you know, were good complementary pieces uh, that knew their jobs and were willing to sacrifice, you know, being a part-time player or being a situational type player and contributing where they could contribute. Um, and it would have been interesting to see what we could have done um, had we brought that that team back one more time. Uh, but, it, you know, it didn't happen. Uh, but that's one of the things that I do think about uh, when I think about the experience there uh, because we had a lot of good pieces and we were, we were a team. We were a good football team. Uh, you know, Mark was a good quarterback. He wasn't a great quarterback, but we went out and got him Braylon. That was, we got him San Antonio Holmes. We had a good running, uh, running game. Uh, you know, had a really strong offensive line, good tight end, uh, good special teams. We, we were a good football team, uh, in those two years. And, uh, you know, we changed the dynamic and, uh, from there we, we slid into, you know, not being as talented. Um, and, Ultimately, you know, we had, we had to leave. Uh, and so, like I said, it just would have been interesting to see, you know, if we had, if we had gotten, you know, kept that, that team together, what, what we could have done. Um, but didn't happen. Water under the bridge. Got to let it go. Um, Buffalo, uh, we, we, just, we just could not put that thing together like we wanted to for whatever reason. Uh, can't explain it. We had talent. Um, you know, I don't. I don't know if you know. It just. It just didn't work. I mean, it just didn't work. Uh, and I. I can't pinpoint to any one thing or any two things or three things. It just didn't work. Uh, disappointing. Um, but you know, we tried. Didn't happen. Uh, and uh, you know, they're doing a good job now. You know, Terry and Kemp Ogula, I felt like were really, really good uh, owners. And uh, they were fair and gave us, you know, most everything that we asked for and everything we needed. It just We just could not put it together. Uh, I enjoyed my time in New York with, with you know, Woody Johnson. Uh, you know, I don't get into the political things. Sure. Uh, you know, side of things. Uh, but I always felt like, you know, we had a good working relationship. And that's all you can ask for, because uh, I know he cares about winning, uh, and he wants to win. Uh, and he was fair to us, and gave us a great opportunity there in New York. And it would have been nice to have won a championship for him, but 
like I said, we came up short a couple of times. Uh, you know, and so, you know, when you look back on it, <laughs> I've been part of six championship games in my career as a player and a coach and won one of them. Yeah. Uh, so I'm not, I'm not too good at getting to the Super Bowl, you know, missed, uh, missed out obviously on five other opportunities, uh, you know, as a player and a coach. So my win percentage is, is very low. But, you know, just having that opportunity, I'm telling you, you know, trying to sleep the night before a championship game is I actually slept better uh, the night before we played in the Super Bowl in Miami, in Super Bowl thirteen than I did uh, in any of the championship games uh, because that's the game to get there. And, uh, and I think it's harder to get there than it is to get yourself ready to play in that game. At least that's how I felt. Uh, because I, as a natural competitor, I feel like if you can't get yourself ready to play in the Super Bowl, then you shouldn't be playing. Uh, so I just felt like just knowing that that was for the champion, the championship, I felt like it was, you know, it was easier to get ready, plus you had two weeks sure. to prepare for that game, you know. And, uh, and so, you know, being able to sleep the night before that game was easier for me than any of the championship games, whether it, be, it was as a player or a coach. Uh, it's just different um, knowing that that was for, you know, one of the goals that you sought at the beginning of every season was, hey, let's get to the Super Bowl. And then the, the result of the Super Bowl will take care of itself pretty much. Um, but one in five is not a good record. <laughs> not a good record. I so hear maybe, you. Maybe I was. Maybe I was the, the the bad luck piece instead of being <laughs> the lucky the lucky charm. Well, I, I you know I I know you're into your uh, your sixties now, and I know you're enjoying spending time with your family, your kids, and uh, your grandson, and all that. But sometimes when I talk to you, either you know today or you know when you and I just catch up, I uh, I always kind of get a little bit of a, a hint that it feels like you still have one more run in you if there was ever an opportunity again, or you know you drop the broadcasting thing, which I don't think you'd ever mentioned to me before, but I think you'd be pretty darn good at that too. So I can't thank you enough for sharing all these stories today. I certainly kept you longer than. I anticipated, but it was a lot of fun for me, and I know the listeners will take away a lot from this, both from your stories and you know the way you explain the game. It, they really like learning about those kinds of things. So, Dennis, I uh, I really appreciate it. Not a problem. Hey, look forward to doing it again. Maybe I will have we'll spend a little bit more time together because I have a lot of stories. <laughs> oh, I'm always ready. We'll we'll do it again in a couple months, no doubt about that. All right, all right, Mike. Appreciate you. Thank all right. you. Thanks, Dennis. Uh huh. See ya. So there you have it, a conversation with former Bills and Jets defensive coordinator Dennis Thurman. I know that this was a longer episode, certainly, so I'm very appreciative to those of you who stuck around all the way to the end. Dennis is clearly a guy that, A, has a lot of great stories, and also, B, uh, is a very adept storyteller. He likes to to give a lot of details and a lot of context, and so I, I really enjoyed him being gracious enough to take about 90 minutes of his time and share it with me so that I could share it with you guys. There was a lot of great stories in there. I I loved hearing about sort of the mindset of that group of corners that they had in Dallas when when he was a player there, sort of this unheralded group that found a way to, you know, put it together and, and reach a bunch of NFC title games during a time when that Cowboys organization was, you know, considered among the best teams in the league. And and what I really liked learning about Dennis's coaching style when he and I have had conversations about that over the years 
is is just sort of how he manages different types of people. I think that you know a lot of times you hear coaches say that coaching is teaching and coaching uh, successfully means teaching success- successfully. And I think that's true. But in order to do that, you have to be really good with different kinds of people, just as a teacher in a classroom has to be good with the visual learner, the auditory learner, the tactile learner, um, you know, maybe even somebody who learns a little bit slower than other kids. And it's the same way, you know, in coaching, there's going to be players of all different intelligence levels, all different learning styles. And so to hear how he managed a guy like Darrell Rivas, and then to hear how he managed a guy like Antonio Cromartie, and then to hear how he managed his rookies. It was all very interesting and, and it explains why he's had success, you know, developing some tremendous corners and safeties in this league because he really does have a good way of teaching and instructing uh, to all different types of people. So those were my biggest takeaways from today's episode. I hope you guys really enjoyed it. Please check out some of our other episodes. They're all available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and just about anywhere else you listen to shows. I hope that you guys will leave a comment, preferably a positive one, and and maybe a ranking of five stars if you like the show as well. And I check out all of them. The feedback means a lot, and I can't wait to hear from some more of you guys down the road. So until the next episode of this podcast, I hope you have a terrific rest of your day, a terrific rest of your week, and I will talk to you again soon. (laughs) 